0: You are listening to The Bell Post. Welcome to our next episode of our podcast, The Bell Post. My name is Ken Good, and I'm an attorney in Texas specializing in bail law. In episode number five, we discuss charitable bail funds. These organizations are relatively new over the last couple of years. They raised large sums of money several summers ago based upon the premise that they, uh, these funds would be needed to bail out protesters. But in the end, 99 or more percent of these protesters were released either without bail or they were never charged. And they were le- released uh, on their own recognizance. As a result, these organizations ended up with large sums of money and no one to bail out of jail based upon the premise why the money was raised. As a result, some of these organizations began to bond people out of jail, uh, just looking for people to help. I think these organizations found very quickly that what the bail industry had been saying was true. There's no low-level people stuck in jail uh, because they can't afford to pay a bond. Because of some incidences that took place, uh, several states started looking at whether restrictions should be placed on charitable bail organizations. Texas was the first state to look at such limitations in its last legislative session. And as a part of SB 6, there is a registration slash certification requirement. And then once you start posting bail, you have a requirement to uh, file monthly reports with the county or the county sheriff. There is no restriction in Texas on any bond that can be posted by a charitable bail organization. Only a certification and registration slash reporting requirement. After the Texas legislation um, passed SB 6, the state of Indiana went further and placed restrictions on charitable bail organizations in HEA 1300. That bill said that a charitable bail organization could not post a bail for a person charged with a crime of violence or a person who's charged with a felony and has a prior conviction for a crime of violence the bill eventually passed the indiana legislature on may 4, 2022, so just 6 months ago. the bell project filed suit against the commissioner of the indiana department of insurance alleging that h.e.a. 1300 was unconstitutional on two grounds. the bell project alleged that the statute violated the the charitable bell fund's right of free speech under the first amendment and also alleged that it violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. The Bail Project asked for a preliminary injunction to prevent the statute from going into effect in July. On June 29, 2022, the uh, Federal District Court denied the request for a preliminary injunction, and the Bail Project filed an appeal to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. In the original complaint filed by the Bail Project, it argued that by paying cash bail for defendants, it was engaging in free speech. The Bail Project maintained that its uh, stated goal was to end cash bail or that cash bail was not necessary and it was engaging in a social experiment to show that people would appear for court and did not need the burden of cash bail. The bail project also argued, alternatively, that if it wasn't engaging in direct speech, that its conduct was inherently expressive conduct, which still satisfied the requirements for First Amendment protection. On appeal, the analysis under the First Amendment focused on whether this speech was inherently expressive conduct, which would authorize First Amendment protection. And there was really no argument that uh, the, the uh, Bell Project was engaging in direct speech that this statute was seeking to prohibit. The test for whether First Amendment protection applies to conduct that is in, inherently expressive uh, is resolved by answering two questions. First, was there an intent to convey a particularized message? And second, was the likelihood great that the message would be understood by those who viewed it. The trial court found that it was uncontested that the intent of the Bell project was uh, to communicate that a system of cash bail was unnecessary. However, there was a disagreement about whether the conduct itself could be readily understood by those who viewed it. The trial court found that the conduct by itself was not inherently expressive and, in fact, required additional speech to be understood. Consequently, the trial court found that they uh, were not entitled to a preliminary injunction, did not meet the requirements of the uh, two-part test for the expressive conduct analysis to apply, and did not reach the merits on the First Amendment issue. Uh, the court did not address what standard of review should be applied uh, to the merits because it didn't reach the merits. The second argument raised by the Bail Project was that the HEA 1300 violated the Equal Protection Clause because it treated uh, charitable bail organizations differently than anyone else who might uh, pay bail without a rational reasoning for doing so. It's interesting to note that both the uh, Bail Project and the uh, the Department of Insurance uh, agreed that the only a rational basis review applied uh, to the equal protection argument. As we all know, the equal protection argument, uh, the standard review usually determines the result. And if uh, the um, rational basis review is the lowest level of review, and if there's just any rational basis for um, explaining the regulation or the statute or the rule, then it will withstand constitutional review and be upheld. And so, in a lot of ways, by agreeing that a rational basis review applied to the 14th Amendment analysis, that kind of determined the result. So, consequently, the Bell Project was turning the argument on its head by saying no rational person would come to this conclusion. However, that's not the analysis. If if there was a rational basis or there was a reasonable uh, explanation for the uh, the statute or the passing of the statute, then it would withstand constitutional review. Once the briefing was completed at the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, the case was scheduled for oral argument, and, org- and oral argument was heard by a three-judge panel on December the 7th of 2022, just several weeks ago. I will provide a link to the oral argument in the description so if you would like to listen to the oral argument you can do so. I would say that the oral argument focused on the First Amendment analysis and specifically on whether the posting of bail by the bail project was conduct that was protected by the First Amendment under the analysis regarding the expressive conduct clause of the First Amendment. The first question asked by the panel of judges was How does this case, why is it not governed by the Rumsfeld case, and how is it distinguishable from that case? The reference to Rumsfeld is a reference to a case decided in 2006 by the United States Supreme Court. The case was entitled Rumsfeld v. Forum for Academic and Institutional Rights, Inc. In that case, the plaintiff was an association of law schools and law facilities, whose members have policies opposing discrimination based upon sexual orientation. They wanted to restrict military recruiting on their campuses because they objected to the government's policy on homosexuals in the military. They were faced with the Solomon Amendment, which provided that educational institutions um, that denied military recruiters equal access uh, to their uh, campuses would jeopardize or lose certain federal funding. Plaintiff filed suit seeking a preliminary injunction against enforcement of the Solomon Amendment. The trial court denied the preliminary injunction and it went up on appeal. It went to the 3rd Court of Appeals, which reversed the trial court and concluded that the amended Solomon Amendment violated the unconstitutional conditions doctrine by forcing the law school to choose between sur- surrendering first amendment rights and losing federal funding for its university. The Court of Appeals also found that if the activities were expressive conduct rather than speech, the Solomon Amendment was also unconstitutional under, uh, under that analysis. The United States Supreme Court reversed the Third Circuit and f- found that the uh, Solomon Amendment did not violate free speech. On the issue of expressive conduct, the U.S. Supreme Court found that the schools, or, the law schools were not speaking when they were hosting interviews and recruiting receptions. The court found that they facilitate recruiting to assist their students in obtaining jobs, and as a result, the law school's recruiting services lack the expressive quality of, for example, the parade in a different that was highlighted in another case. Nothing about recruiting suggests that law schools agree with any speech by recruiters, and nothing in the Solomon Amendment restricts what they may say about the military's policies. So we have this case from 2006 from the United States Supreme Court saying that expressive conduct uh, did not apply to law schools when they were um, when the military was being uh, when the law schools were required to allow recruiters onto their campus, and um, and so there was a lot of discussion and debate about how that applied to the Bail Project in this new situation. There was a, a lot of discussion about. When the Bell project goes to post a bond, how could the clerk who's taking that money to post the bond, how would they know that they're furthering speech? Uh, there were multiple questions about how would a clerk know that? The answer to each of those questions was that the content and circumstances uh, was the reason why the Bell project was alleging that by posting a bond, they were uh, engaging in expressive conduct. One of the judges commented that the only way the, the a clerk or a judge or a member of the public would know that would be if the bail project provided further speech. And so it was not the conduct itself that uh, that was expressive. It was just conduct, and you didn't know, know what the purpose of the conduct was uh, without further speech. Another judge was asking, so... Is it the identity of the payor that transforms the conduct into expressive conduct? The Bail Project was arguing that it was the payment that was saying you don't have to have skin in the game, and that that was speech, uh, that was expressive conduct. The first judge came back and said, how does the clerk know that? Doesn't that require the clerk to guess? And... Uh, to presume. The bail project made a reference multiple times to a regulation that was adopted by the Department of Insurance as support for their position that their uh, conduct was expressive conduct and protected by the First Amendment. The second judge raised questions about whether char- charitable bail organizations are pretty new and whether the answer to the question about whether their conduct was expressive conduct would differ 10 years from now. This led the first judge to come back and say, well, what is the difference between the Bell Project and the law school in Rumsfeld? The judge even said, is it the payment that's the difference? Is it because the law school does more than one thing? Once again, the Bell Project's attorney came back to explain that it was the content and the circumstances uh, which was the difference between uh, the uh, law school and the Bell Project. The third judge started raising questions about what if the Bail Project, when it first started, like, and in, in just gave a year, like 2017, and said on the very first day when it posted a bond, if there was a, a a statute passed, would it be a violation of free speech then? The judge argued was it dependent upon the profile for the first six months. Letter, uh, the Bail Project pointed out that there were letters welcoming them in, uh, from judges. The Bell Project also argued that the system was well aware of its existence and repeated its argument that conduct and circumstances were the difference. The second judge questioned whether uh, speech should be presumed, because of the very existence of the law itself, Um, should it be presumed that there was some type of message conveyed? She argued that the mere fact that a message is being conveyed, we don't. Uh, the judges did not have to know exactly what the message was, but once there was a message conveyed, then it could obtain First Amendment protection. State responded that conduct is not speech; that regulation has to be open and notorious for it to be speech. Uh, also, uh, the um, the state um, sought to um, distinguish the case that was being relied upon by the judge, that was referred to as the Hurley case saying that it was a little bit more uh, uh, restrictive than she was arguing. I think also the state made an effective argument by saying that the posting of bail is the same for everybody. No matter which group posted, it's the same. So you can't argue or you cannot conclude that some speech is being conveyed by the mere fact of posting bail. There was also a discussion making an analogy between posting bail, done by the bail project, and flag burning. One of the judges said, you know, the first couple of burned flags were not protected. It was not until uh, there was a symbolism that was garnered over time. Therefore, there was a discussion about whether there was some inherent symbolism by the fact that the bail project posted bail, and so that it could be um, conduct that could be expressive over time and become inherent symbolism. The first judge came back and said, look, even flag-burning today at a rally is protected, but if if he went to Walgreens and burned a flag, that would not be protected because you can't set a fire to a store. The second judge came back to her point about the evolution argument about whether uh, over time certain acts become symbolic and that they become protected as a result of t- the passage of time. And and because of their symbolism. The state started referring to this as a uh, watered-down, flexible standard uh, that was being uh, proposed by the uh, Bell Project and uh, argued that the Supreme Court had rejected such an argument or standard in the Rumsfeld case. The state argued that under this analysis, analysis, there's a kernel of expression in everything and if you're going to l- lower the standard, then everything becomes protected. The first judge came back and said, well, can I change my conduct into expressive conduct by yelling really loud before I go into the courthouse to post a bond? The state argued that th- this analysis was rejected in the Rumsville case. The third judge raised the issue about whether this was targeted legislation against the bail project specifically. Statute exempts an organization that posts three bonds within 180 days But the judge asked, why three? Why not 30? Why not one? Close to the end of the oral argument, one of the judges, the first one, came back and said, well, if the legislature wanted to, to, they could make cash by the defendant, just the amount set by the court. But if it was cash by another group, not by the defendant, it could be cash times four. And the state agreed that um, that the legislature could do that. There was a discussion about why the legislature enacted the statute. There was a reference to some incidences involving people who were uh, bonded out by the Bell Project. There were really no questions about the equal protection argument other than the closing statement made by the uh, uh, state's attorney just noting that it was a rational basis review and that the under a rational basis review the uh, uh, there was a reasonable basis for the uh, statute and Therefore, it did not violate the Equal Protection Clause. So, if I was going to summarize the oral argument, I would say it focused on the First Amendment uh, argument of the briefing. Uh, There was no real argument that that the posting of bail was speech itself. And so, the whole argument turned on whether the posting of bail by the Bail Project was expressive conduct, which authorized uh, First Amendment protection. And I think the analysis that was uh, thrown around by the court uh, showed that uh, the bail project had a very difficult task ahead of it and that the really the recurring theme and argument that the bail project came back to was to say that the content and circumstances of posting bail by the bail project Satisfied the requirements of expressive conduct. I I don't think that argument won the day, but there was interest or questions from two of the judges about whether uh, symbolism uh, allowed conduct to become expressive conduct and obtain first member protection. And one of the judges also was asking whether this seemed like targeted legislation against the Bell Project. No decision was handed down by the Court of Appeals on December 7th. We are now waiting for the Court of Appeals to issue its opinion. Uh, we, I would say that the average length of time for the Court of Appeals to issue opinions around three months or more. So we should be looking for an opinion in mid-March. We can add this case to the other cases that we've had decided during the pandemic about limiting the use of certain type of release mechanisms. And if we put all those cases together. Currently, we would say in Texas, uh, the Texas Constitution protects a person's right to release on a surety bond with sufficient sureties. That's the private industry. That's the only constitutionally protected type of release in Texas. This means that your right to a private industry bond is guaranteed by the Constitution unless the Constitution specifically sets out an offense that the trial court has the authority to deny you a bond. We also learned during the pandemic that the legislature has the right to limit uh, the use of PR bonds. Uh, the, uh, the governor of the state of Texas, Governor Abbott, uh, issued Executive Order 13 during the pandemic, limiting the use of PR bonds for certain violent offenders. Uh, the, the Fifth Circuit and the U.S. Uh, I'm sorry, the Fifth Circuit and the Texas Supreme Court both uh, upheld. The governor's right to do that and the limitation of the use of PR bonds in that situation. The legislature turned around in SB 6 and codified the restriction on the use of PR bonds for certain offenses. And since that was already litigated, had already been decided by the courts, it has not been litigated uh, uh, again. And then we have cash bonds, which are can be posted by anyone, or charitable uh, bell funds. A charitable bell fund has no restriction on the uh, bonds that they post currently in Texas. They're just required to get certified as a charitable bell fund, and then they're required to file monthly reports after they start posting bonds. Unless they post less than a certain number, I think three within 180 days, then they're exempt from the certification requirements and from the posting of reports. This case adds a new wrinkle, uh, because we have restrictions that otherwise we know that are constitutional, that the legislature has the right to do. And so the, the uh, bail project was looking for a federal uh, argument to invalidate the actions of the state legislature. So why are we having this as an issue? I, I think if you go back and listen to episode number five of the bail post, uh, you'll hear a lot more uh, talk about charitable bail funds. I think one of the things that surprised me in that episode is, is the comments that the, charitable bail funds are really a solution looking for a problem uh, because their original purpose on why they were set up and the reason why they raised a lot of money turned out not to be needed Um, most of the protesters if not all were released without bail and probably never even had charges filed and so there were bail funds looking for things to do with this money and they had promised to bail people out of jail And I think they found out very quickly that there's just not a lot of poor people sitting in jail. And I would even dispute that there are any poor people sitting in jail who are not able to bond out simply because of the amount of bond they had posted. Uh, Especially after the pandemic, that's really not a problem anymore. I I don't think I would argue about whether it really was a problem to begin with. I think it was a rhetorical uh, argument, uh, but not a real true situation. Consequently, bail funds have found that there's just a lot of dangerous people in jail. And so they've started releasing uh, people who families have given up on because they're hardened criminals. And so we're finding that the bail funds are posting bonds for a lot of people who otherwise would stay in jail. And they need to stay in jail. The incidences that we've had in Indiana, we're also seeing in other parts of the country. There was a bail fund recently that bonded somebody out of jail and uh, they proceeded to to, um, arrested and accused of murder. Now the Bell Fund has been sued by the family and has announced that it's going out of business in that area. I think the Bell Funds have found that their argument that people will show up for court and they don't need uh, private surety bail is is not correct. It's not true. We're finding that bail reform across the country is not talking about reform. Really, it's talking about decriminalization of crime. And as we've seen, the decriminalization of crime, we've seen crime go up. I hope this episode of The Bell Post has been informative for you, and, uh, and I hope that you come back for Season 2 starting next month. We will continue to keep you advised of changes in the law and developments across the country on criminal justice issues in the bail industry. Thank you for listening, and come back for the next episode of The Bell Post.